Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. There's a lot to talk about. Um, so tonight, what I'd like to talk about is what happens during the four breaths when you're following the inhale and the exhale in the nostrils, as you've just done. What happens when we're off and away in our favorite neurotic loops? And uh, what happens when we come back again? Um, so in the Zen tradition, uh, in which I've trained, um, we have this basic assumption, which is that the teachings of reality are always present. Like we're always being taught, always being taught. Uh, but we miss it. We miss it all the time because we're asleep. We're asleep in our daydreams. Have you noticed this? Yeah. We go off. I call this time traveling. So we're following our breathing, and then the attention goes off, and it travels through time into the future or into the past. All of our thinking does this time traveling. And what happens is, is when the attention goes off and sticks to something, a sound, an image, a memory, a sensation in the body, a feeling, or some kind of feeling tone in the body, when the attention sticks to that, the attention starts going around in loops. It starts turning in on itself. And these loops over time, we call stories. It's, it, it, it creates a kind of narrative version of reality. Um, but when those loops keep reinforcing themselves, they become uh, belief systems, right? which are just these narratives that are glued together over time that, interestingly enough, uh, psychologically become our sense of ourselves. They become who we think we are. And when we're wedded to this narrative version of me, uh, life doesn't seem to have so much meaning because we're always... Um, superimposing meaning on everything. And then our experience of reality is quite narrow. This is not being awake. This is not having a beginner's mind. This is not the heart of compassion or empathy. This is going into the world and verifying everything we know already. So the sitting practice that we do when we sit still, it's a reminder that reality is teaching us all the time. 
So we need a practice where we're able to really notice how attention wants to loop, and then we're able to come back again to something in the present moment that's embodied. And that's one of the nice things about using the breath as an anchor in stillness practice. I try not to call it meditation most of the time because people have, especially in Kelowna, I'm just joking, because people have so many associations to what meditation is. So nowadays I just call it stillness practice because then people are like, oh, what's that? But as soon as you say meditation, there's like all this baggage now associated with meditation. So one of the reasons why I've taken up, I've developed this way of teaching using these four breaths is that the focus isn't so much trying to get really still. It's about training the attention to de-center or to uncouple from whatever it's caught in. So during the four breaths, the mind starts to settle. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. It's only four breaths, so probably you can be a bit concentrated. Great. But the most important thing is that when you're caught in the distraction that begins, in the time traveling that starts, you can come back again. Because so many issues around our mental health, like depression or anxiety or fear or um, um, various forms of low self-esteem, are all rooted in the ruminative mind. When you talk to somebody who is depressed, when you listen closely to someone who's anxious or has a lot of fear, there's a lot of rumination. A lot of rumination. I'm doing this with my hand. That's terrible. A lot of rumination. So all the meditative teachings in the lineages that in which I've trained have sort of three components. The first is to pay attention to how you use your mind. To really look closely to what's happening in the mind. The second is to pay attention to how you interpret experience. So you're not just looking at the mind without getting uh, caught in it, but you're also noticing how you're noticing your experience. And this is the key point of mindfulness practice that gets missed a lot, which is mindfulness is not just paying attention to what's happening in the moment. Mindfulness is paying attention to what's happening but paying attention to the way we're paying attention to what's happening, right? It's not just that we're noticing what's happening, but we're (coughs) noticing the quality of our attention. We're noticing how we're noticing, if that makes sense. And the third piece is not just noticing how we're interpreting experience, but noticing how we live in the world. And this is one of the pieces of meditative practice in the yoga and Buddhist traditions that's really key that also doesn't get articulated very much in the secularization of meditation, which is that meditation is an ethical practice. It's not ethically neutral. 
And when the Buddha taught meditation, he always did it on the heels of teaching about karma. That when you take an action, it always has an effect. And the key message of the Buddha was it's very important that we pay attention to the effects of our actions. That we pay attention to the consequences of what we say and what we think and how we act. It's really key. And that if someone starts to want to develop a practice of being awake, a practice of being sane, a practice of compassion, it begins by paying attention to the consequences of our actions. Like if you walk around thinking you have a clean moral conscience, you don't understand karma. Karma means that whatever you do, there's going to be an effect and you can't control it. But you can do your best through your intentions to try and control the consequence. But you can never control it. It's like parenting, right? Parenting is like delayed consequences, right? You don't know how it's all going to turn out and whether your kids will ever visit you again once they leave home. <laughs> And as you let go of the conditioning that gets in the way of paying attention, then you find you can be of more use in the world. We can't be of use when the pivot point around which everything we perceive is me. That's not being of use. And also, when everything's about me, we're pretty unpleasant to be around. I know when I'm like that, I'm not pleasant to be around. So this practice is about turning a light inward, paying attention to what's happening in the mind, paying attention to how we're paying attention, and paying attention to the consequences of our actions. And that whole piece is called karma. Karma doesn't mean fate, which is because that we have that interpretation because of John Lennon. <laughs> Instant karma is going to get you. That's fate. The word for that in Sanskrit is vipaka. But karma just means when you take an action, it has an effect. It's really important that we start to notice that the kind of reactivity we have to our inner experiences reinforces that same reactivity. So if you have emotions that are hard to tolerate, if you have mental states that arise in which it's hard to soothe yourself, if you have relational dynamics that always trigger the same emotions that you act on, the, the law of causality tells us that we're going to reinforce those patterns in ourselves. And that's why it's really important sometimes to just sit still. And maybe that's why it's also threatening to just sit still. 
Because if you sit still, it's like bringing a mirror up close. And you start to see your reactivity. I teach uh, meditation retreats. And sometimes when people come on a meditation retreat for the first time, sometimes the second and third time too, they're really nervous before the retreat as they think, oh my God, I'm going to lose my mind or I'm just going to like not be able to tolerate my mind. And then they start sitting for the first day and they're crazy. Like their mind's just spinning and spinning and spinning. And they come to me and they say, I don't know if I can do this for a week. You know? And my job is to hold them there and to say, keep looking, keep looking, keep looking until they can see that the mind is insane. It's not here. Oh, I'm crazy. You know, it's here. They can see it. And that's where the motivation to practice comes from. They can see the rumination. They can see how hard it is to forgive people because they're still telling the same stories from the past. They can see how hard it is to enjoy the present because they're planning so much for the future. Like maybe right now I'm talking and you're planning. You don't have to put up your hand, I, I can tell. <laughs> we all want to live in a good culture. So we need to choose actions that are benevolent, actions that are creative, actions that are compassionate. But sometimes the, the habits from the past we can't see. So we're acting out a level of reactivity that we don't even realize until we stop. Until we stop. And we feel our level of anxiety. Or we feel how much fear we have. Or we feel maybe how down we are. And we've been trying to like stay up above it with coffee. <laughs> So, kind of the main point to, the, at the, so far in the talk that I want you to take away is that in this tradition, there's a collapsing of the boundary between meditation and ethics. That, that meditation is an ethical practice. That meditation is a practice of cultivating mental states that are not characterized by reactivity. I'll say it again. That meditation practice is a practice of cultivating mental states that are not characterized by reactivity. And it's interesting because the word that we use medi for meditation in Sanskrit is bhavana which is the word the Buddha used for meditation, which is a term, it's a horticultural term. And as a verb, it means to cultivate, to cultivate. So we often think meditation is like sitting still, not doing anything. But the Buddha thought of it as a horticultural practice of cultivating what is wholesome, cultivating a non-reactive space 
cultivating the ability to catch reactivity and come back into the present moment. Again and again and again and again and again. And if you can do this every day, sitting still, then in your active day, when your kid does something stupid, when you do something stupid, when you send that email you shouldn't have sent, when you receive the email someone else shouldn't have sent, you can catch yourself. So that's one level of understanding having a contemplative practice, is we're cultivating peace by training the mind not to be caught in habitual patterns of reactivity. But then, once you start doing this, you start to notice that all of this reactivity is serving the purpose of reinforcing a sense of me. You start to see that most of the thinking you do and most of the fantasies you have, good, bad, or neutral, are all reinforcing a version of yourself you want to have and believe you are. So I wanted to unpack a little some of the components of what's needed to start to deepen meditative awareness. So this is the more technical part of the, the lecture tonight. So there are four basic technical stances that one cultivates in order to develop this ground of peace, this ground of compassion, this ground of non-reactivity. The first is um, neutrality or equanimity. So one of the parenting mantras that I use with my young kids is when they're doing something really crazy, I try not to respond emotionally. If my kid is not going to bed and they just want to run around and run around and they're really worked up and they're getting more and more worked up, I'm sure this doesn't happen to your children. <laughs> this happens only in my house. Um, if I find myself starting to get upset, I try to just respond with neutral statements. It's bedtime. Let's get to bed. I'm not going to chase you anymore. As opposed to what tends to happen when we're reactive, we, we start getting really emotional. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. We start getting sometimes much more reactive than the kid is. And then their reactivity gets fueled by our reactivity, and then it's a complete disaster. You need a mediator. <laughs> so in uh, meditation circles, sometimes this is called bare attention. And that, what that means is attention is bare or stripped of habit patterns. Okay, so for example, let's say you're sitting still and some discomfort arises in your neck and then it turns into an itch. And you notice unconsciously you really just want to scratch the itch. 
but you don't scratch the itch. You just keep sitting there, and all of these mental formations start being created. It's a spider. I'm going to get bit. It's that rare spider from Kelowna <laughs> that only comes once every 200 years. And you can see yourself like being taken out of the meditation hall by ambulance because of the spider bite. And you can see us like in court, you suing Michael for holding you in meditation. Do you know these kind of fantasies we get, right? It's amazing. So bare attention is to be able to stay with the itch, stay with the sensations of the itch as it changes and passes away. That's what we mean by bare intention. Attention. There's no interpretive moves on top of the sensation. Does that, can everybody kind of feel that? Yeah. Um, the second one is a removal of censorship. So if the first phase is bare attention, being neutral, the second phase is not censoring the experience. So this has two pieces. One is no judgment. So if you're noticing your breath and then you go off for some really long thought and then you come back just before the bell rings and then you go, God, I'm such a bad meditator. That's not mindfulness. So a mindful stance has, an, has, has, has in it the removal of censorship and judgment. This is a really important uh, training of attention for artists because how this works in creative practice is once you can get your attention really neutral, you're removing the critic that censors experience. So you're paying attention to everything that moves through awareness, but there's no reactivity to it. You're just letting it all move through awareness. So thoughts aren't bad anymore. Thoughts come through, we just don't follow them. And then we start noticing more, <laughs> right? So not censoring your experience, not editing out your experience. Sensations move through, thoughts move through, feelings move through. We're not censoring anything. Whatever moves through, that's what moves through. And for those of you who are psychotherapists, this is really good to work with with your clients or with your patients, is teaching people how to describe what's happening in their experience without censorship. And psychologists who work with people who have meditation practices know that they're the best clients because they can describe and track what's happening in their experience without so much reactivity to it. You don't have to bring them back so much. They can stay in discomfort because they've removed this level of censorship. And when you start entering stillness, it's surprising how much censorship is going on. We have so many rules for ourselves about who we are, how we're aging, how we eat, 
who we hang out with, who we take in, what community we're part of. Like all this is censorship. All of it. It's all ways of clinging to a self, to a me. So the first one, do you remember the first one? Bear attention. Yeah, bear attention or neutrality. The second one? No judgment. No judgment. Letting go of censorship. The third one is delaying gratification. Delaying gratification. Now it's interesting because the Dalai Lama um, calls meditation practice the delay of gratification. Sometimes he calls it the ethics of restraint, which is, I think, a very elegant way. So he doesn't use the term meditation. He calls it the ethics of restraint. Isn't that beautiful? We crave pleasure. It's biological. When something's not pleasurable, we want to get away from it. We want pleasure. All we do is we want pleasure. Watch. Think about your day today. We're motivated by pleasure. So part of meditative practice is starting to see that a lot of what we're motivated by is unconscious and quite limited. And when discomfort arises, we really want to get away from our discomfort. We really want to get out of our discomfort. When physical pain arises, we really want to gratify our senses somehow. When emotional pain arises, we really want to eat and shop and look at other people's Instagram, especially if they have a better life than ours. We can't transform compulsion unless we know how to be with difficult experience. And I think we all know that the people in society who have wisdom, the people in our culture who are the, the, the teachers, the people who we go to when things get tough, are people who know how to be in difficulty without trying to escape. They're not the people who are good at giving advice. They're not the people who have good interpretations about our psychological experience. They're usually not even experts. They're the people who, had a, who know how to bear really difficult experience without jumping out of it, without trying to escape. That's what I mean by delaying gratification. What's it like to be in experience that's not pleasurable? And to know what that feels like. And to feel how it changes. Even if that change seems to take a really long time. Like it does with grief. Or like it does with physical pain. 
So a meditator is someone who is more interested in the sustained application of attention than an instant gratification. And all of us, all of us, because of digital technology, we're trained in instant gratification. Because nobody smokes anymore, when you have a busy day and you need a break, what do you do? Yeah, Facebook. Thank you. We go online. So you're in a hyper-aroused state, and instead of taking a rest break, what do you do? You go online to a more hyper-aroused state. And over time, that starts to destabilize our emotions and our attention. Because when we're in a hyper-aroused state and don't get those rest periods, we don't know what it's like to come back into the body into a non-reactive space. And we start to distrust our body, we start to distrust ourselves, and it becomes harder to regulate our emotions because we're so distracted. We don't know what to pay attention to, but more importantly for this point is we don't know how to sustain the attention. Right? We don't know how to sustain our attention. So, what are the three points I've covered so far? Remember the first one? Bear attention. Bear attention. No judgment. Delay gratification. Yeah. So, the last one, the fourth one, um, is... One of the things you start to cultivate in meditative practice is a, what I'm going to call a therapeutic splitting in the ego. So, you know, if, if you learned meditation in the 60s and 70s, probably all you learned about is getting rid of the ego, which is just complete nonsense. If you don't have an ego, you're in a lot of trouble. Okay? So forget that. Don't do that. You can't do it anyways. Um, but what does happen in meditation practice is you can split the ego so that the ego can become a subject and an object. So that you can observe with the ego how the ego functions, if this makes sense. And this is therapeutic to be able to do this. For the ego function, the sense of me, to see the sense of me functioning. Really healthy. We want this. We want this. So that the, the sense of me starts to see that the sense of me is a story that's being constructed in real time. And then doesn't believe it and actually thinks it's funny, but doesn't lose itself either. You see? So in a way, the ego is never lost, but it's therapeutically split. So it becomes subject and object simultaneously, if this makes sense. 
It sees itself functioning, but it still knows that it's me, even though it's not really me, because it's a story, but it still feels like a me. For some people, for genetic reasons or for trauma in the caregiving environment when they were younger, um, their differentiation between self and other is disordered or skewed. So the ego is not strong enough to be able to split in a way where it sees itself. So somebody like that, for example, that we call borderline personality or we see on the psychosis spectrum or the schizophrenia spectrum, what happens is, is the fantasies start kicking in, but the ego that's observing the fantasies isn't strong enough to have space to see the fantasy as a fantasy. It just seems like reality if that makes sense. And for that person, meditation is really bad. You don't wanna get that person to sit still and follow their breathing. Because what will happen is, fantasy life starts kicking in and there's not enough strength in the observing capacity of the ego to see what's happening with any distance. It's hard enough for most of us in this room to get some distance on our experience and to see stories as stories. But when somebody doesn't have the ego strength to observe that, then what happens is, is they start swinging back and forth between all of the fantasy life being them or reality not really existing. And how that manifests in relationships, because I've seen this many, many times, is that the teacher who's teaching them is incredible and the most spiritual being on the planet. And the next day has no idea what they're doing. And that person is the most spiritual person on the planet. You see, so there's these swings between the good and the bad, between self and other, it's not regulated. And for that kind of person, you don't want to be doing meditation on the, on, on the breath. Not at all. Later I'll tell you what you do want to do, but not that. So those kind of students will oscillate in their experience between um, just seeing the actual emptiness of reality and then being totally caught in fantasy and not being able to train the attention to be stable in both, you see? So that's why sometimes it looks like that person is accessing some really deep states of concentration well, they are, but it can't be integrated at all, right? It's just like someone who takes LSD, right? You take LSD, you might have a really cool insight into reality, 
but it doesn't necessarily get integrated in your life and you had a cool experience but it doesn't necessarily shift how you do your life and your level of attention that has to be trained over time sorry for all of you who had the LSD experience <laughs> you're like well I thought I was really <laughs> so why am I saying all this because what happens in meditation experience is it's designed to uncover repression. That's what meditation is designed to do. It's designed to uncover everything we cling to, even the self. Because we know the more we undo our attachments to what we think of as me, the more we become ourselves, and the more compassionate we become. How can you be compassionate when everything's about me? But the problem is, is people with borderline personality, people whose uh, personality structure is not as solid, a, 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 a practice that teaches uncovering is really destabilizing. You see? So for those kinds of personality types, we use meditative practices that are structuring, not uncovering. Okay? So that could be walking meditation. It could be chanting. It could be cleaning. It could be cooking. It could be gardening. It could be studying. Or very specific meditative practices that are not about relaxing into stillness, but are about cultivating a sense of strength in the personality. So maybe they would be visualizations of protection. I'm not going to go through the whole roster. But it's, and I mention this just because I know the audience, there's a lot of meditation teachers in here. And I think these are important conversations to have that mindfulness is not for everybody that it needs to be taught in ways that appreciate the structure of the personality that's learning, you see. So, can I keep going here? Yeah. Suppose everything's okay, you found yourself in one of these camps, you're learning practices, you're getting more and more still, um, you can observe what's happening without getting caught up in it, you can sit still every day for 20 minutes, different uh, mental states arise, and you can stay with the experience. Imagine that. And, and you wake up in the morning and you really want to sit. It's not just, oh God, Michael told me I have to sit. Then what starts to happen is what uh, one uh, Theravada teacher named Bhikkhu Nyanamoli says, calls uh, dispelling the illusion of compactness really like this term, dispelling the illusion of compactness. So there's a, a sense that we're a fixed, continuous point of observation. It feels like the locus of attention is inside me, and I'm looking out at experience. As you get more and more still, you start to see that what you're looking at is a representation 
that's constantly being constructed. So if I, could, if I had a PowerPoint here or a whiteboard, I would draw this. Self, this is the self, the locus of awareness. And there's all these objects, seeing, hearing, clock, sound, digestion, uh, thirsty, tea, right? Like objects of awareness. Does this make sense? The self, here's the self, is receiving data from objects through the sense organs. So self, object, 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 and all these objects, fan, TV, ceiling, floor, are happening to the sense of me, okay? What starts happening over time is the attention stops looking so much at the objects and starts looking at the me. It's like it turns around and sees that the self, is this, is this clear? Is this kind of making sense? That the self that's noticing the objects is also not so compact. So it's like instead of self, object, 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 it would be self-object, 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 that the sense of self is as staccato, is as impermanent, is as fluid as the objects themselves. We stop experiencing ourself as feeling solid. which is the core of suffering. Mm -hmm. We start to see how who we think we are is just a story we're telling. And that goes from being a philosophical idea that you're like, yeah, totally, I like... It's like you smoke a joint and then you're like, yeah, I don't really exist, man. You know? <laughs> I get to make all these pot jokes now because like near where I, I live near Victoria, and wherever you go, there's these pot dispensaries everywhere. Do you guys have this in Kelowna? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like, I'm all about like, if you're in pain and for medical reasons, you need cannabis. But when I walk around Victoria, and I see how many pot dispensaries there are, like 40, 50, I don't know how many. I start doing the math of like their rent, how many people need to be going in there to buy pot, and then how many people there are in Victoria, and how everyone on the street right now must be stoned. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, pot doesn't wake us up. It doesn't wake us up. It doesn't create the conditions for being awake to what's happening right now in our experience. It puts a filter in our experience. Anything that intoxicates us puts a filter in our experience. Alcohol, shopping, RRSPs, <laughs> clinging to RRSPs, I mean. Isn't it that season now? Soon the dispensary and the RRSP place will be the same <laughs> point of sale. <laughs> I'm getting off topic. 
if somebody asks you, uh, what's practice? You can say, the light in the room right now. Sound of the fan. The eyes of the homeless. What's happening right now in your experience is practice. That's what we train in. And over time, as you train, you start to cultivate equanimity. The censorship starts to lift so you can be yourself. Less judgment. There's this therapeutic splitting that starts to happen in the ego where the ego sees what the ego is doing. And then over time, you start to notice that nothing belongs to me and mine. And the whole project of constructing a me is just a game. And that if you can't see the game functioning all the time, because it will keep functioning, but if you can't see that happening, you get caught. And then it's harder to take skillful actions, even internally, because we're just in our reactivity. So that's practice. Why keep imprisoning ourselves? Why keep imprisoning other people? Why so hard to let the past go? Because we want to keep our version. I want so much to have my version. It doesn't serve anybody. So none of us know in the future how we're going to need to serve. Our parents are losing their minds. They don't even know who we are. Or people in our community are ill or unstable. And we're going to need to serve them and help them. But we don't know how yet. But we'll be called. So we need to practice so that we can help other people. And the best part is when you practice for other people, you get happy. So that's all I have to say. So what I'd like to do is to take a little break, like just five minutes.